A reading from Psalm 15. These are God's words. A Psalm of David. Yahweh, who shall sojourn in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh truth in his heart. He that slandereth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his friend, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honoreth them that fear Yahweh. He that sweareth not to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not his money to interest, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. These are God's words. You can take your seats. David poses a couple of very important questions at the beginning of this psalm. They are the most important questions for a sinner to ask God. You and I must know the answer to these questions because it is of, of central importance that we know how to please God. Let's read again the questions that David poses at the beginning of the psalm. Verse 1. Now follow along with me. Yahweh, who shall sojourn in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? How would you answer these questions? Would you answer them as David did? The answer he sang was the person who does good and does not do wrong. Many preachers today, if they had the assignment of exegeting this text for their church on a Sunday morning, I believe, would quickly back away from David's answer here and look to other parts of scripture to answer his question. But I don't think we should do that. There are some important and encouraging lessons for us here if we camp in this psalm and take David's answer seriously. When David wrote this psalm, the tabernacle and the holy hill were physical places that you could go to. They were places of worship where the people of God were expected to attend regularly and they were to attend with personal holiness. They were not to worship hypocritically, bringing the correct offerings to their religious services, but slandering, lying, and ripping off their neighbors during the week. This is what God said to Israel, Israel about their hypocritical religious services in the book of Amos. I hate, I reject your feasts, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Remove from me the tumult of your songs. I will not even listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Would God feel the same about our worship? Would he now, uh, would God feel the same about our worship in this modern context? Would he now, because 2,000 years have passed, be happy with hypocrites singing with great tumult on his holy hill. We are children of Abraham and members of the same covenant that God made with him. 
So we have the same responsibility to bring personal holiness with us to worship. Here is what Calvin said about this. No doubt he adopted Abraham freely, but at the same time, he stipulated with him that he should live a holy and upright life. And this is the general rule of the covenant which God has from the beginning made with his church. The sum is that hypocrites who occupy the place, uh, a place in the temple in vain pretend to be his people. For he acknowledges none as such, but those who follow after justice and uprightness during the whole course of his life. End quote. So God is only pleased with our worship when we meet his requirements. We are going to... Uh, we are going to look at the requirements David gives to those who would sojourn in God's tabernacle today. And as we assess ourselves against them, you would be right to say that only Christ could perfectly meet these standards. Nevertheless, this is what God expects of us. We must admit our dependence upon his grace and power and live in daily dependence. We must be radical in our repentance. We must not provoke him to anger with our hypocrisy. So who can dwell on God's holy hill, according to David? Let's look at verse 2. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh truth in his heart. What is your relationship with the truth? Are you a man of your word? Are you a woman of impeccable truth? Do you lie to yourself? Are you slanting things in a particular way, framing your current situation falsely so that you feel better about yourself? Or are you giving yourself excuses or avoiding responsibility? We all fall short of God's standard of truth. Nevertheless, we ought to root out every lie that is in our lives. How sweet is the thought of a life that is fully surrendered to the truth, that is not enslaved to lies, but instead is set free from the burden of maintaining all that is false. This is what God wants for us, and this is what he wants present in his place of worship. Let's look at verse 3 now. He that slandereth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his friend, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. What do you do with those you know with your words? What do you do to those you know with your words? Do you diss your workmates for kicks? Do you taunt your little brother because he is small? Do you say mean things to your big sister because she is just annoying to you? Do you just say dumb, unnecessary things about people because you have loose lips? The book of James says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Nevertheless, we should endeavor to be perfect with our tongue. How can we from the same mouth bring both blessing and cursing? My brothers, these things ought not to be so. That is hypocrisy. How sweet is the thought of a person who has his speech fully surrendered to the will of God, always speaking in genuine love to those he addresses, full of care and wisdom, producing good fruit in himself and in the lives of others. This is what God wants for us, 
And this is the kind of tongue that he wants singing in his place of worship. Now we're going to look at the beginning of verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honoreth them that fear Yahweh. Do you despise the sight of the attractive, clever, and funny God-haters? Those who mock your maker while dazzling those around them with their beauty. Or are you instead drawn to those who selflessly serve God, who might be less talented and less exciting than those on the TV, but would love to share with you in rich fellowship and commune with you and the one true God? How easy it is to do nothing and watch the pretty people on the screen living out lives that God hates. We are to despise watching them on their way to hell, particularly those who are actively rejecting and blaspheming God for our entertainment. On the other hand, how hard it is to maintain fellowship, to get out of our comfy houses, to wrestle through, di through the difficult things of Scripture with other people, to apply the word together, to be with someone who in the fear of Yahweh might correct you, we ought not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but we should be continually encouraging one another. How sweet is the thought of a community that rejects the sexy but soiled culture of the world and instead shows honor to an, an invisible beauty, embracing the people who love the ways and the words of their creator. This is what God wants for us. And this is the kind of community that he wants in his place of worship. Now the last part of verse 4. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. Do you follow through with your promises, even if it will cost you a bunch of money that you don't have? Even if it means you have to do a trip to the shops just before you're about to climb into bed? Would you suffer two hours less sleep to write the email that you promised? Do you do the thing that has now become awkward because it took you so long to get round to doing it? Every man and woman at times finds it hard to keep their word, but we should desire the pain of a broken bone over having a pain-free broken promise. How sweet in the sight is it to our sight when we see a man suffering for the sake of keeping his word. How honorable, how manly. How sweet is it to see a mother baking a castle birthday cake that she had promised to her five-year-old at two in the morning. This is what God wants for us, and this is the kind of committed people that he wants in his place of worship. Now, some, uh, now verse five. He that putteth not out his money to interest, nor taketh reward against the innocent. I think we're all good on this one. None of us have any money to lend, so we're not going to get any interest from it. No, there are applications to this verse, and let's try and find some. The gaining of interest here is essentially using someone else's misfortune to your advantage. Abusing someone in a vulnerable position. Does that ever happen in your home? When someone accidentally broke something of yours, did you make them bear the full weight of your wrath and expect them to replace it later? 
do you manipulate and use your wife when she hasn't done her duties around the home as though she owes you something extra? Do you extort your husband because he forgot your anniversary? We often try to gain reward by making the innocent feel like they owe us. We pump up the guilt to our advantage, and it is disgusting. How sweet is the home that is not tallying up wrongs against each other, but instead covers over faults of the ones they love, extending mercy and forgiveness quickly, and is ready to, to give help when others are falling behind. That is what God wants for us, and this is the kind of people he wants in his place of worship. Lastly, at the end of verse 5, it says, He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Here David is expanding upon the answer to his initial question. Not only will those who doeth these things dwell in God's holy hill, but they shall also never be moved. This is a theme that we've seen again and again in the Psalms. God has established a principle in the world at creation that the righteous will inherit the earth and the wicked will be removed. Proverbs 10.30 The righteous will never be moved, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. Psalm 15, uh, 10 through 11 uh, that mustn't be Psalm 15, because I'm reading Psalm 15. I've got the wrong quote here, but it says, Yet in a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place, and he will not be there. But the lowly will inherit the earth, and will delight themselves in abundant peace. I think that might be Psalm 37, possibly. Uh, there is no safer place or more peaceful way to live than in the center of God's will. Seek his will. Do what he commands, and you will never be moved. This is what we can draw from the plain meaning of Psalm 15. Now, what else can be said? What other applications can be made from the teaching of Psalm 15? I'm going to make three. The first one is, if we push the truth of Psalm 15 out into the corners, taking into account what we know from the rest of Scripture, I believe we can know with certainty that we who place our faith in Jesus will one day be safe in the presence of God. So how can that be? While David was asking questions about the earthly tabernacle, there is also a heavenly tabernacle that is, the actu that is actually the true substance of the earthly one. The heavenly tabernacle is a place where only the perfectly sinless can dwell because God is holy. Every earthly tabernacle, temple, and church that God has commanded us to worship in is a picture of that true heavenly place of worship. Now, when we consider how one would gain entrance into this heavenly tabernacle, we know that every requirement of this psalm, Jesus perfectly fulfilled. And we know that because he did fulfill all righteousness, he is now dwelling in the presence of God in perfect safety. But more than this, since God has promised by, that by grace through faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, we, depraved sinners, 
shall so, certainly sojourn where we should not have been allowed. Christ did all that was required in this psalm, so we shall certainly dwell in his holy hill, and we shall never be moved. Amazing. So to sum up this first general principle, because Christ is righteous, and one day we will be as righteous as he is now, we will certainly meet the requirements needed to be in the presence of our holy God. The second application I'm making is the need for us as sinners to practice covenantal renewal worship. Why is that? What do I mean? The way our liturgy is structured, the first thing we do is acknowledge that God calls us to worship him and then we respond. It is right always and everywhere to give him thanks and praise so we understand why God calls us. It's right to do this. It makes sense. And we come because we love to worship the one who deserves all our praise. But coming to God as a sinner presents a problem. Who shall sojourn in his tabernacle? This is the question that David poses. Shall the slanderer, the liar, the one who took advantage of his wife's distress? Everyone who comes to church is a sinner. And in the ultimate sense, we in and of ourselves have no right to come into the presence of God as we are. This is why after we have that call of worship time, we confess our sins and acknowledge that it is by the blood of Christ that we dare to come into his presence. And more than that, because the offering of Christ's blood is powerful and sufficient and effective to cleanse us, we come boldly. Our liturgy has the order that it does because we believe this is how God teaches us to come into his presence. I hope you have been blessed by this intentional approach that we've been trying to apply. God wants us to meet with him, which is a wonderful thing, but it must be done on his terms. We must come obediently. And this is the essence of the teaching of the psalm. The third and final application is that we at Redwood should be invested in each other's holiness. If it is important to God that we worship him with personal holiness, then a love for our fellow church members will lead us to sanctify each other with the word and call each other to obedience. While we were considering each requirement that David gave, I tried to show how sweet or how beautiful obedience is. Some people might think that a church community striving for holiness with each other sounds like an oppressive group. No, this is the definition of love. We want each other to experience the sweetness of holiness. First and foremost, we want to please God, of course. But we find that as we please him through obedience, we gain freedom and joy. We experience the beauty of holiness. Psalm 15 teaches us that God wants us to bring, hang on, I've messed it up. Psalm 15 teaches us that God was to, <laughs> I think I've just totally messed this up here. Can't even work out what I'm writing. Ah, oh, sorry, I understand what I'm writing. So Psalm 15 teaches us that God wants us to bring what is truly beautiful into his presence. He doesn't want us to bring the un ugly, mangled offering of the unrepentant. 
So with all these things in mind, let's sing Psalm 15 together. Yeah. 